G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Most of us want to be tied to something that gives us significance. We want to know that we're doing something that really matters. There are certain qualities that have been given to us by our Heavenly Father. And a huge part of our DNA is a desire and a strong need way down deep inside to give in order to feel like we're alive. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. My name is Bill and today's message is the last in the Broke series, a series that's helping us find hope when we're broke or broken down. You can find the whole series on most podcast apps. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff starts this message with the big question, what do you want out of this life? To help him answer this question, he's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As usual, this message is in two parts over two days. So let's begin now with Pastor Jeff. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19, or through 19. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've learned a valuable lesson. We're in a series called Broke, and just by way of starting, man, if I could somehow crawl into your mind and do mind control right now, it'd be really cool. Just because I want to make sure your mind is receiving what you're going to hear today, that your mind knows it's coming from my love for you and my concern for all of us, and I don't want you to mistake anything I say other than in that arena but our love for you and what God has for us. Now, what have we learned so far in our series? I hope you've learned it by now, that when the Bible talks about the word rich, that we are the rich ones. That's you and me. That a billion people in the world live on a dollar or less a day. That we have food, that we have a roof over our heads, that we have pure, clean drinking water, that we are more wealthy than 96% of the rest of the world that we are indeed the rich ones. So because we know that, now I have a very important question for you. What do you want out of life? What do you want? What kind of life are you really after? Some of you young people, I see a lot of young, what are you after? What do you want out of this life? What are you hoping to gain? I ask people that all the time, and usually the first answer is, I want lots and lots of money. Because if I have lots and lots of money, they say I can go visit the world. I can take cruises all over the world. I can go to Europe. I can go to Australia and lie on the beach. I can go wherever I want to go. And I say, okay, then what? What's next? I thought about this once. I thought, man, if I could just, if I could play golf every day for the rest of my life, that would be a good life. And I kind of tried it once on vacation. I played four days in a row. By the fifth day, I was sick of it. You know why? 
because most of us want to be tied to something that gives us significance. We want to know that we're doing something that really matters. Playing golf every day doesn't. Laying on the beach doesn't. You'll like it for a while, then you'll hate it. Even Proverbs 25 says, if you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it, and you will vomit. <laughs> In other words, too much of a good thing is going to ruin everything. Unlimited money, that's not what is going to give you the life that you were meant to live. I mean, look up at Hollywood for crying out loud. Look up there. Unlimited resources. And yet Hollywood is inundated with depression, drug addiction, and overdose, and relational estrangement. Nobody ever stays together. Is that the kind of life that we want? We always think what we don't have, that's what would make us happy. As a matter of fact, the more people I meet, the more I'm starting to believe that the more money you have the less your odds are of being able to live a life that is truly life. Money and all of it seems to distract us. It seems to sidetrack us from the life that is truly living. All right, Jeff, what are you on about? Here's what I'm on about. First Timothy chapter six, verse 18 through 19 on the screen. <laughs> Command them, that's us, the rich ones, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Okay, Jeff, what does being rich in good deeds, being generous, being willing to share have to do with me discovering the life that I've always wanted, the life that is truly life? Now, stay with me just for a moment because we're gonna have to take a little journey. Sorry, but this is again one of those messages where I pull out a funnel and I say, we're gonna pour a bunch of stuff into it and it's gonna be confusing at times, but if you'll stay with me in the end, it'll all come out crystal clear. Here's the first ingredient into the funnel. I was reading something by a favorite author of mine by the name of Eugene Peterson. He describes standing by and watching a mama bird and a baby bird pushing, sorry, the mama bird and the daddy bird pushing the baby birds out of the nest. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out towards the end of the branch, pushing, pushing, pushing. The end one fell off somewhere between the branch and the water, four feet below, the wings started working and the fledgling was off on his own. Then the second one. Oh, but the third one was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again, bulldog tenacious. The parent was without sentiment. He pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the poor chick to hang on than risk the insecurities of flying. Uh, some of you with older children are getting some ideas right now. The grip... The grip was released and the inexperienced wings began pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Now stay with me. Birds have feet, they can walk. Birds have claws, they can cling. They can walk, they can cling, but they were meant to fly. And man, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the bird hanging on that nest. And if he just keeps hanging on, if you could somehow be the bird, talk to the bird in his language, you'd probably say something like, are you serious? Have you completely lost it? Do you realize you have the ability to live outside of this little hole and fly and soar over California? That's not a commercial for Disneyland now. Soar over California and to see things from God's vantage point where nobody else gets to see. You're there looking down. Why on earth would you ever cling to the branch? Jeff? What do you want me to see? I want you to see this. The Bible is clear, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 and other biblical passages that the God of this universe is a giving God. 
It's what he does best, Matthew chapter 5. He, God that is, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is such a giver, he gives to those who don't even like him very much. Every good and perfect gift, James 1.17 says, comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And then John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now that's a giver right there. God is a giving God. Jeff, why is it important for me to know that? It's important that God is a giver because? Because you and I, according to the Bible, have been created in his image. We're like him. Now, I know there's a limitation here. Like my friend says, there's two things I know for certain. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you ain't him. I know that we're not God, but God made us and put a lot of his DNA into us. We are like we are for a reason. It is not accidental. Now listen to me when I say this. There are certain qualities that have been given to us by our heavenly father. And a huge part of our DNA is a desire and a strong need way down deep inside to give in order to feel like we're alive. Come on now, is that really hard to believe? Have you ever given somebody that you loved something very special and you couldn't wait to see their face light up when they received it? Isn't it true that that was more glorious than it was to receive anything from anybody else? You know my friend Bill McCarthy that I talk about in Auckland, New Zealand, who started the television program for us, who's kind of world renowned for what he does at the Olympics and around the world? He's with us today in the audience. He is, he's right here. Not gonna tell you where, but he's here. I remember when he first started doing the television program in New Zealand, I just wanted to thank him so much for having the vision of how many people he was reaching in New Zealand. But I had no money. I didn't know what to get him. So I went down to his favorite cafe and I bought him a $200 gift card to his favorite place of coffee. When I gave that to him, man, it was worth so much to see his face light up with appreciation. I felt alive, alive. Now, here's an eternal truth you can take to the bank, no pun intended. The law of gravity is woven into this universe like the law of giving. That means the law of giving is woven into this universe like the law of gravity. And if you and I try to live by clutching, by hoarding, by getting, by stockpiling instead of giving, in the same way, that if we break the law of gravity, we're gonna break our body. If we break the law of giving, we're gonna break our spirit and our life is going to become wearisome at best because we were meant to give because when we give, we soar, we fly, we live the life that we're supposed to live, the life that is truly life. And when we clutch the tree and hold on to everything, we're just gonna be resignated to a life in the nest. Now, unfortunately, through a series of unfortunate events, most of us in the room have begun to do one of two things. Come on, be honest, fess up. One, you're either clinging and hoarding and clutching and holding on to what you have for fear you won't have it, or you've become a person that you're just living way beyond your means, you're maxing out all the credit cards, you've already done that because you think you gotta keep up with the Joneses, you want more and more and more because your sense of identity is wrapped up in what you have rather than God. And let me tell you something, either one of those lives, you will never know what it really is to live until somebody pushes you or kicks you out of the tree. As long as you keep clutching to your things and refuse to live a life of generosity, you'll never experience the joy of living the life that you were meant to live, the life that is truly life. Now, to be fair, 
about us, not just you. Remember what I said. I'm determined to get this right in my life too. All this is coming right back at me, right? The primary reason we cling and don't give up and the time uh, that we spend in our lives clutching, there's a reason. And I want to illustrate it before I just give it to you in simplicity. Not too long ago, when we were in New Zealand, I took my wife to visit the little town of Waipu. That's right, Waipu, that's the name of it. My little boy Delaney was 11, and the first time he saw the name of that town, about laughed his head off. Waipu, Dad, are you serious? Well, right across from the sign you saw is a little park. And I took my wife to that park just for a little time of rest and relaxation. Now, I took her to that park after we had had a rather spirited discussion in the car for two hours. That's pastor's lingo for we fought in the car for two hours. Yes, pastors and their wives and their wife, they do fight. <laughs> I always get that wrong, every time. Okay, there you go. So we're walking in the park, and you know how we men are, right? We just kind of want the argument to end. So we're in the park taking a walk, and we come upon these nine little duckies, ducklings. And there's a big duck beside them, taking care of them. Then over here, just across the way, is another adult duck, just kind of rolling around the water, playing, eating bread, whatever, having a good time. My wife sees the opportunity. She goes, I want you to look at that. Isn't that so like a man? He just goes over, the family's over here, does whatever he wants to do, plays in the water and the grass, while mama duck takes care of the ducklings. <laughs> well, I want to tell you something. I was not going to have any of this. I was sick and tired of taking it. So I jumped in and I said, how do you know? How do you know that's the mother duck? That might be the daddy duck and mommy duck's over here. What makes you so sure? <laughs> and about the time I said that, these ducks switched places. One duck came back over and took his or her time. Man, I felt so vindicated. I felt so good inside. I wanted to say, yeah, you see that woman? You're not right about everything, right? That's what you feel. That's what we men feel, right? But because wisdom is the best part of valor, we don't say what we feel, even though they do. We don't say what we feel because we want a peaceful ride in the car on the way home. That's all we want. Jeff, why do you tell? Because birds have always been great analogies to life. Jesus knew that. He used them all the time. Here's what he says in Luke 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Now, Two pennies is the Greek word asarion, which is one sixteenth of a denarius, which basically is the same amount of one hour's wage. Actually, it's less than that in Jesus' day and time. Are they not sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The reason we clutch and hold, we forget that divine providence governs even the most inconsequential details of God's creation, that everything that he made, he cares about, and he has a plan to take care of it. Jesus says, come on, guys, stop hoarding and clutching. Look at the birds of the air. My goodness, their whole existence, even when they eat, it's not a random act of an unfeeling, unthinking, unblinking mechanical universe. It is a witness of a God who cares, who's generous and faithful. He's a giving God, so don't be afraid. If God cares about these who have not been created in his image, and you have been created in his image, if he cares for them, he cares for you, he'll take care of you. But somewhere along the line, you and I started grabbing and clutching and getting more and more because we don't really believe God will take care of us. 
So we started leaning toward material things for our hope and security, even though we've been told earlier in this passage that you cannot trust the economy. Wow, Jesus said that 2,000 years ago. Must have been a prophet. He's right, isn't it? You can't trust the economy. There are times of, of, of vulnerability in all our lives, so better put your trust in God. Now, when we lived in New Zealand, and Delaney, I think, was about 11 years old. And there was a time when he was 11, I noticed he started pulling away from his father a little bit. I didn't know why. Maybe I was busy doing the work of the church and neglected him. I'm not sure. I noticed he just was quiet. Now, there was a time I remember his mother asked him to go down to the bottom of our backyard and collect all the weeds and grass that she had collected from working in the yard and put it in a wheelbarrow and then turn that wheelbarrow around and roll it up the hill back up to the top of the road where the garbage collectors would collect it. Now, our backyard in New Zealand had a severe slope. And when he turned that wheelbarrow to go up that hill, he just didn't have the strength as an 11-year-old to push it up. And I knew that. And I'm standing out there just watching him. And I'm thinking, well, is he going to? I'm right here. Is he going to ask me to help him? I mean, what do I do? And he doesn't ask. Finally, I felt, man, I can't let my son go through this. So I walked down there and I said, Delaney, all you got to do is ask. I'll help you. He said, those big blue eyes. Thanks, Dad. And I helped him push the wheelbarrow up. But God says to us, I will meet all your needs according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I'll give you, if you just ask me, I'll help you. We stopped believing that, so we started clinging to the temporal. We're clinging to the nest and we're no longer soaring or flying and we're missing the life that is truly life. Is it not true now that most of you in this room, when I mention the word money or finance, stress, worry, fear, and frustration, and it's because you forgot, if you will ask and you will pray, God has promised to take care of your needs. So do you know what we force God to do? Every one of us. God spends most of his time kicking you out of the nest. Because he knows that you will soar and fly when you become a person of generosity, but you will not become a person of generosity until you realize you can trust him for all your needs. What he spends most of his time doing with you and me is shoving us out of the nest because he wants us to soar. We look at it as if the sovereign God has abandoned us. Where's God? He's kicked me out of the nest. I'm falling, falling. But in reality, it's a loving, sovereign hand of God that knows we will never fly and will never soar until we start to understand life in the nest is no good. Clean to the branch is no good. We're going to soar and fly and have a vantage point that we've never had before. Only when we become a person of generosity and respond to the DNA that's been placed in us by a God who created us in his own image. I want to give you two ways I believe God kicks you and me out of the nest. Here's the first. He changes our perspective by reminding us that it's all daddy's money anyway. He changes our perspective by reminding us that it's all daddy's money. Come on, fathers. It's your day today. How many times has your little boy or little girl come to you and said, dad, can I have some money? I want to get you a birthday present. Right? Now, I got to tell you, just as a side note, guys, we've blown it on this. And I pray that some of you, you have children that are young that I can rescue you today because we've not been wise. We reach in the pocket and we'll give them a 10 or a 20 and say, go buy your father a birthday. Don't you realize, guys, this is our opportunity to go above the head of our wives and get something we really want? Don't you see that? 
Next time your boy comes to you, you give him 600 bucks. <laughs> and you say, you say, you know what? I have been a good dad this year and it is my birthday. I'll take those new Ping G5 irons. Here you go, son. Instead, we give him like five or 10 bucks. That's our own fault. We're robbing from ourselves. <laughs> but it's still our money, no matter how much we give, right? That's the analogy God is about to use with us. Hey, everything you have is really mine. It doesn't belong to you. You are clutching and holding something that is not yours. And so in Malachi chapter three, verse eight, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Wow. That's a pretty aggressive kick out of the nest. God says, when you refuse to bring the tithe to me, what is rightfully mine, you in fact are robbing me. Now, why does God use such harsh language? It's pretty difficult. It may be painful. It may be scary. The fall may be out of the nest, irrevocable, irrecoverable. But the truth is, God, by reminding us that the whole tithe belongs to God, and if we withhold it, we are stealing from him, he hopes that we will have a paradigm shift, that we will change the way we're thinking about all the stuff we have, and we will move from mine, mine, mine to his, his, his. And that's why in every message in this series, I've read to you from Psalm 24, so I'm going to do it again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now look, God's smart. You know that, right? He knows guilt will never change the way you use your money. I'm not into guilt, coercion, or manipulation. Forget it. He's not into that either. He knows that projects will not change the way you use your money. If I brought Ajay Law from India in here every week and you gave him $30,000 to do his work in India, that's, not still, that's still not going to change the way you look at your money and the way you use your money over the long haul. God knows that you need a paradigm shift, a shift in your thinking. So he basically says this to you. In order to help free you, to get you out of this nest, your generosity begins by understanding this one principle. I have a legal claim to 10% of everything that you own. Now, follow me. Every time I bring a message like this, and quite frankly, for most of my Christian life, every time I heard one like this, I tried to look for the exit and sneak out. <laughs> because we don't like it. But the tithe is not an old law principle. For years, I justified, I said, well, that's all. No, no, it's not. Look, there's no 10% tithe in the Old Testament. It's actually 23%. It's a tax on the nation of Israel to operate as a nation. The 10% starts way back before the Mosaic law ever came into being because it reveals to you and me the heart of God. Listen, go over, first of all, I've mentioned this before, that Abraham, hundreds of years before Moses, brought tithes and offerings to Melchizedek. But look in Genesis chapter 4. This is before the law ever came into being. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked over with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And in other words, God was displeased. Why? They both gave something. Why can't he be pleased with both? Because one gave the very best the first fruits, the 10%, the tithe, the other gave what was left over. And God was not pleased. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Jeff, are you telling me if I give God a dollar like those TV preachers say, he'll give me 10? No, 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 no. It's up to God to determine in what form the blessing comes. But I'll tell you this, it's a direct promise. He says, man, you give me what's rightfully mine and I will open the windows of heaven. How does that apply to us today? If you honor God, God will give you everything you need. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.